In the construction business and can't find what you need, Quality Supply and Tool has served Hoosiers for over a quarter of a century. Tom Hawk is the branch manager of the Indy location on South Harding Street. We've always been big on keeping our shelves fully stocked of inventory of industrial-grade tools, concrete, masonry products, as well as the necessary accessories to help get the job done. You don't have it, you can't sell it. Our experience allows us to help with getting the pros as well as the weekend pro taken care of. Quality Supply and Tool also has locations in Bloomington, Lafayette, and Jeffersonville to help you think outside the box. Store. Only the best run here at the Indianapolis 500. Mario, who do you feel you'll have to beat in this year's race? People like uh, A.J. Foyt and uh, Bobby Unser, for instance. Stand by for the checkered flag. Absolutely incredible. Danny Sullivan spun in front of Mario Andretti. A.J. has done it. Beyond the Bricks with Jay Query and Mike Thompson on 93.5 and 107.5, The Fan. Hey, good evening to you on a Wednesday. How are you? My name is Jake Query. Mike Thompson, of course, joining as always. Hard to believe we're already midway through the week here on Beyond the Bricks, getting you set for essentially a triple-header weekend at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Of course, it will be on Friday when... The open wheel guys, IndyCar, the NTT IndyCar series, as well as the Indy Next series, will be taking to the road course at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Then the Xfinity series on Saturday, of course, Cup running on Sunday. So, Mike, here we are halfway through the week, and it's always fun when we get a chance to basically find any excuse we can, right, to be able to do a radio show talking not only about racing, but of course, the contributions of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway within that sport. Yeah, it's fun to get a chance to just, uh, you know, it was one time I think the show was described as kind of bench racing on the radio, and I think that's a little bit of what we do, and I think that's a lot of fun. So, yeah, any chance we have the opportunity to do that, I think we should take the advantage of that. I think one of the things, Mike, and this is credit to you, you know, Mike Thompson, who has, as I have always said, um, the largest, clearly, audio library of racing stuff I think that an individual can have, um also as i've mentioned i've actually uh, been to mike's home it's sixteen thousand square feet fifteen thousand nine hundred and fifty of which is memorabilia and then uh a futon right mike isn't that how it works I, and i have one of those fold-out chairs an ohio state fold-out chair that i can sit on and put a drink in yes that's correct. <laughs> and it's my hope that this year that chair folds if they happen to play clemson in the postseason um <laughs> which probably is not going to happen. But nonetheless, I think one of the things that's fun about this, Mike, is over the years um, that we have done this program, what truly is, and this is a, a 1,000% credit to you, has nothing to do with me. I, I'm simply the the kind of the liaison that, that bridges it together. But what you do, I think, that's really neat is some of the audio that we play and that we'll play, you know, we've played the last few nights and that we'll play the rest of the week, brings back to life sometimes race car drivers or contributors to the sport that you know time has passed on and i've had family members or friends of drivers that have reached out to me and said holy cow you know i work with so and so's granddaughter and she didn't even know that that audio existed and you know you could see what it meant to her to hear her grandpa's voice again or to hear their uncle or their godfather whatever it might be and and women as well i mean you know their aunt their their grandmother but for some of these racers in particular for so many times now people have come up to me to say how much they appreciated that either a family member or a favorite driver of theirs 
that we brought them back into the conversation and let people hear firsthand from those drivers. Mike, when you really break it down, man, that's a pretty special thing that you're able to do. Oh, that's my favorite part of it is um, finding audio and saying, oh, this is what, you know, Jimmy Reese sounded like, or this is what Dave McDonald sounded like, or, you know, these different drivers from the past. And then it's uh, really gratifying. It happened to me several times at the memorabilia show this year where somebody stopped and said, you know, I can't believe you found that soundbite of so-and-so and I was related to him, as you said, or, or I knew so-and-so and, and, uh, you know, it's just, you know, that really is gratifying to me. I, that's the part I really enjoy the most uh, about doing the show is, you know, is keeping the memory of these, of these great competitors and, and, not only competitors, but, you know, people who are associated with the sport, uh, you know, perhaps maybe they were, you know, we, you know, we featured people like Al Blemker and all these different people who were, you know, they weren't drivers, but they all had important roles in the sport. So, you know, I, that's my favorite part of the show, actually. A couple of years ago at the Indianapolis 500, I say couple, it's probably been, gosh, now that I think about it, it might've been a little over 10 years ago. Uh, Richard Petty paid a visit to the Indianapolis 500 and Dave Argabright, who's a fabulous motorsports writer from central indiana got a chance to interview richard petty and aj Foyt together on the main straightaway at the indianapolis motor speedway just before the indy 500 and it was interesting in that conversation they talked about the fact that you know richard petty said you know he used to come down here and bother us from time to time talking about aj Foyt and uh, aj Foyt had one of my favorite quotes about richard petty when he said we never could get him to come up here and race our little um I can't I think he called them our little June bug cars or something along those lines but the conversation simply being about the fact that drivers would cross over from one series to the next and AJ Foyt was one of those that went down and raced against Richard Petty in stock car and tonight's conversation Mike is going to be about those drivers that as we are getting set for this triple header weekend of both series in stock car and Indy car what better thing to do than to talk about some of the drivers that have run the Indy 500 and also gone down and competed in NASCAR. And that includes, Mike, in reality, some of the biggest of the best. Yeah, and that's what's neat about it is, uh, you know, that era where different people were doing different things and they were able to cross over and get a phone call, as we'll hear in some of the sound bites tonight. You know, you get a phone call out of the blue and, hey, uh, you want to ride, you know, have a ride with Smokey Eunuch or, you know, some of these huge names, Holman and Moody and, uh, that's what was cool about that era is all these different crossover opportunities that that arose. And and you're right. I mean, you know, some of the biggest of the biggest names, uh, you know, were doing these crossovers. Donnie Allison, Gary Bettenhausen, they made their first start in the Daytona 500 in the ninth running of that event. Hard to believe just nine runnings in 1967, talking about the 1967 Daytona 500. But there were other names in it that also would race in Indianapolis and become famous there. Jim Herdebees would be one of those who, of course, is legendary at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. The aforementioned A.J. Foyt. Gordon Johncock is another. But before we get to probably the biggest star of that race, let's take a listen to a little bit of the early broadcast, the 1967 Daytona 500-mile race. And the green flag comes up. Again, how? Okay, Mario Andretti out in front, but there's a pack of cars that have made that pit stop and are right behind him, and he'll be racing for that first spot. And here they come, racing around him. Paul Goldsmith going into the lead with uh, Curtis Turner right behind him. Mario Andretti holding on to the number two spot, and Paul Goldsmith must have really had a charge of power. He's pulling around. 
down. Royal Andretti second, Curtis Turner third, with uh, David Pearson fourth, and we go back to radio control. And down to uh, Bob McGinley, I'm sorry. As they come to me now, we have a challenge for the lead, and it is Mario Andretti back in the lead again. Goldsmith second, Curtis Turner up to move for that second spot, but can't seem to have the power to get up alongside of Goldsmith. We have Davey Pearson running in a fourth spot. Richard Petty is fifth. Al Derringer sixth. And Tony Lund seventh. Back to radio control. That's the way they stand as they come off the fourth turn down toward the start-finish line. Let's go to Barney Hall. All right, that's the way they're still running as they approach that number one corner. They're really standing on it as they come down. A pack of automobiles, about six, seven cars, just about a bumper between them on Freddie up alongside Goldsmith. And there's a battle again for that number one position. Goldsmith running high in the turn. Gets around Andretti. Goes back into the lead. Andretti running second. Curtis Turner running third. Dave Pearson is running fourth. Down the long straightaway. That's the way they're lined up. Back to radio control. And to Bob Smith on the fourth turn. Goldsmith is traveling on the outside. Coming in on the inside is uh, Mario Andretti. Mario Andretti taking the lead and he pulls right around with him. Curtis Turner who now moves into second spot. We have Mario Andretti in a fourth. Then the Chevelle of Curtis Turner. Paul Goldsmith is third. David Pearson is fourth. Being challenged by Dale Derringer. They move into the trial. Back to radio control. And up to Hal Hamrick. Okay, real battle as they keep uh, using these air currents to move back and forth. Mario Andretti out in front with the Ford. A Chevelle in second place with Curtis Turner. And uh, Goldsmith is in third. Not often that you hear Mario Andretti's name mentioned as Mario Andretti, but of course that was fairly early even though he was already a mainstream star within his racing career 94,000 people a little over that were witnessing that 1967 Daytona 500 and Mike what we heard there already you could hear the introduction several names of which we would become very familiar in both forms of racing at that Daytona 500 yeah it's cool to hear also the great Paul Goldsmith involved in that duel Um, it's interesting because you know Paul Goldsmith in that little clip you hear him you know dicing for the lead with Mario Andretti but I went back and looked at the box score, and actually, Paul Goldsmith never even led in that race, uh, which was kind of interesting. He was he he was leading during a lap, but never led at the line, so he didn't get credit apparently for uh, a lap led during that race. But uh, some of the great names, you know, Curtis Turner, uh, you know, Paul Goldsmith is one of the nicest people of all time. I mean, I just I just love Paul Goldsmith. Uh, you know, one of the true true gentlemen of the sport. And you'd mentioned Curtis Turner. He had started on pole in that race that took just over three hours to run. There were nine lead changes, and in the end, the guy that was leading was, in fact, Mario Andretti. And in a conversation with Mike, Mario had a chance to talk about his experience in that 1967 Daytona 500. Well, in all fairness to them, you know, I uh, I was fairly new. I mean, I had driven Daytona the year before of, uh, for Smokey Eunuch, you know, and Chevelle, but uh, and <clears throat> my only other experience was uh, testing, uh, you know, the Le Mans cars, you know, the, for Ford. We used to do a lot of testing, so you know, I had pretty good feel of the banks, but uh, I didn't have much good much feel of about the drafting, you know. So there was a lot of things that I had to learn. And um, and again, so uh, Ford was, uh, they were kind enough, you know, to really put me with uh, their factory team, with Holman and Moody. And the guy was there was the golden boy of uh, NASCAR at the time, which was Freddie Lorenzen, you know. So um, when things were, you know, in practice and so forth, you know, he was getting the good stuff, no question. And, uh, 
And somehow uh, I know that I was down in the revs and I, I was asking questions. Nobody was giving me answers until actually it was Donnie Allison who actually says, yeah, for the gear you're pulling, you should be running this 7,200. I said, well, I'm only down for 400 revs on the straightaway. So I uh, qualifying, a single qualifying, I had to qualify. I qualified with a really a shallow spoiler in the back and uh, – and then I was being told, man, he said, you're going to have a problem in the race because you got to race with it, you know. And uh, I said, well, I, you know, I'm not getting the rest. Then finally, you know, after, you know, complaining and so forth, I, I got a proper engine for the qualifiers for the, in those days were 100 milers, you know, now they're 125s. So they can make at least a stop. And those days they used to cheat, try to, uh, you know, to, <laughs> to just make 100 mile without, without, stopping and uh, anyway uh, and I was flying you know in the 100 milers and and I was I led I think most of most of the way but I had to stop so uh, I didn't win that but uh, but I uh, in the race uh, though I, I, I the car was loose but it was a manageable type of loose you know I was lucky that uh, uh, I had a certain degree of balance uh, mechanically in the car and that helped me get, you know, because to drive 500 miles with a loose car, I mean, it's uh, it's not a, you know, something that you really want to do if you really don't have to. But uh, but the car, the back end felt, you know, uh, like I had some control of it. So, but the only thing is that uh, I had to lead, you know, following and drafting man that I was all over the place you know so uh, I just I went for the lead early and that's why you know I led uh, you know over half the race you know throughout and uh, I had great battles you know with uh, Richard and uh, Pearson he and I probably had the longest battle you know uh, going on and 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 again but um, uh, they they sort of uh, they figure well you know because a lot of guys, you know, trying to save fuel, you know, they try to draft uh, along the race. They said, man, he's going for a lead, you know. He, he doesn't know what he's doing. Well, I knew what I was doing. You know, I wanted to stay alive, you know, there. I didn't want to spin. So, and and it all worked out. I mean, it's, um, you know, it was a race that gave me incredible amount of satisfaction. And, and as you said, you know, obviously, uh, you know, it was probably not a real welcome win because it's the same thing as if one of uh, the, the the drivers from, you know, a NASCAR driver would come to Indianapolis and win in our own, you know, <laughs> in, in our own sandbox, you know, if you know what I mean. Uh, so, uh, but at the same time, though, I uh, always felt welcome down there, you know, that uh, I remember even from just when I started driving, you know, the 24 hours down there, how uh, um, uh, uh, Bill France uh, senior always welcomed me, and it always made me feel that way. And and as far as racers, you know, it's um, uh, you have to try to gain your respect by you know just driving decently and 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 uh, respecting the other guys, and that's how it works. But um, but again, you know, I go to NASCAR. You know, the boys that that I know, it's like visiting you know my other family, just like when I go to Formula One. So. Mario had won that Daytona 500 in his second start. He had started in 1966 for Smokey Eunuch. More on that owner coming up in just a little bit on the program. He would return in 1968 where he started 20th and finished 29th, running again for Holman Moody. But again, back to that 1967 
Daytona 500 for Mario Andretti. How it sounded, the recollections of winning at Daytona. Caution flag is out right now. And the caution and white are out together. This is the last lap. The caution out to all intents and purposes. That's the way it'll end up with Mario Andretti, the winner. His share of the Speedway purse is $22,500, and he will also get a sizable amount in lap money and in uh, accessory monies as well. That was unfortunate, naturally, for number 40, Jerry Grant of... uh, the West Coast, Jerry, quite a sports car driver in his own right, and now taking to the uh, the stocks for some of the large purses that they offered. Here comes number 42, Tiny Lund, in. So to all intents and purposes, the race is over, and we'll be going down. And yes, here comes the checker now, uh, just as a uh, uh, proper way to conclude a race, although with the white and caution out at the same time, there could have been no passing, so the race was actually concluded one lap early, but it'll go for the full distance. And you know something, uh, James Hilton from Inman, South Carolina, the rookie of the year for NASCAR, second place man, by the way, in the NASCAR championship, will be running in third spot. That's a, a mighty good jump for a little fella. I'll yes, yes, and uh, Fred, as you know, of course, he, up to last year, had been mechanic for some of the top cars, but never had one himself, and uh, he's done a great job. Right, he and uh, oh, about two other men are the entire crew. That's right, that's right. Well, we're happy to see it because he's just as nice a guy as he is a good driver. Now let's get down to the track here and see just what is happening. Of course, we'll have uh, activity in victory lane in just a few moments as soon as this car comes around. Uh, I don't spot him at the moment, do you, Fred? Uh, Andretti, is he taking a, uh, an insurance He'll lap, perhaps? insurance lap, certainly would. Yeah, uh, that might be him over there on the backstretch. He's in the uh, number two corner, Ted, coming around right okay, now. Okay, fine. We'll follow him around. We'll go to Bob McGinley. Will you follow him around with us, Bob? Uh, go ahead, Ted. Will you follow around with uh, Mario Andretti and keep us advised as he makes progress? Is he over there on the second, on the uh, third turn? Uh, Ted, he's, he may be coming down. It looks like he's coming down the back chute right now. Uh-huh. And here he comes. He's going to McGinley now. He's coming see. down and he's running very, very slowly, cruising right along. And some of the fans here are giving him a wave as he goes by. Goes up into the second lane, taking it very easy. And uh, I imagine he's quite a happy boy to score a big win like this in the NASCAR ranks that uh, adds to his USAC championship. And... Uh, Imagine the Pennsylvanians would be happy about that. Back to radio controls. Yes, he's had a great afternoon, and after all, when you say he's traveling slowly, he's not going anywhere right now, you know, uh, except into Victory Lane. And, of course, that ordeal is quite something. After driving 500 miles, he'll have uh, all the pretty girls who are attached to various manufacturing concerns greeting him. And, of course, we'll have our microphones down there, too. And... Oh, there's a big sign up on his blackboard, and all it says is a dollar sign. And I'm sure he's seen it. (laughs) Yes, sir, a big dollar sign, and how rightly so. And now let's go down to Harry Johnson and Ken Squire in Victory Lane. It all comes down to this. 50 tried, 49 did not arrive in the most hallowed ground in automobile racing. Mario Andretti of Nazareth, Pennsylvania, is in Victory Lane. 28 years old, he still has not rolled his windshield down. He's taking off the helmet. A very happy, ecstatic young man. He'll climb out on the right side of the car. The car that has carried him to the richest, 
stock car race and the greatest stock car race, there's no question but what this has been the very best. Mario Andretti, we need you out on this side if we can. Hey, I don't know, you blew them some of the Mario Andretti getting out of the automobile and getting the congratulations of the crowd. We're trying to get over to him here now. Let's see if we can get in to have a word now with Mario Andretti. He's there. Mario, this is for radio and for the television folks around the world that are in with you today. How did it go? It looked like a beautiful ride. Well, it was beautiful, I tell you. With a Ford uh, mounted on Firestones, you just can't lose. Mario Andretti, what about the entire distance? How many pit stops? Uh, I think we had five, uh, just about what we had scheduled, and uh, I'm glad I held out on that first one. I think uh, that one gave me a little bit of an edge, but uh, the, the car just ran beautiful and handled nice. Just a uh, lovely day. Were there any unscheduled stops on the automobile today, Mary? Any unscheduled no. problems? None at all. No, everything went just as smooth as silk. Toward the end there, I was a little worried because uh, we were all bunched up, and uh, once I shook the draft, I uh, shook him from me, I, I thought I was all right. You look like you're turning some awfully fast laps awfully early in the race. Well, yes, the car was just, as I said, working beautifully, and I was trying to go as hard as I could. I wasn't going to save anything, so I'm glad it lasted, and uh, I guess it paid off. Mario Andretti of Nazareth, Pennsylvania, here in Victory Lane, about to receive the awards and trophies. Now, Mike, I'm not saying times have changed, but this weekend for the IndyCar race, the Indy Next race, the Xfinity race, the NASCAR Brickyard cup race that are all going to take place out there the two things i will try not to do on the radio one of them is refer to all the pretty girls that are out there and then also call any of the drivers the little fellow that's racing around the track yeah and did you hear the, the someone ask if mario needed a ladder or something to that effect <laughs> during that, that clip too. i mean times have definitely changed <laughs> i will not ask if the little fellow needs a ladder for victory circle right um, when we come back, some of the yeah, the drivers might have been small. The names are giant, and that includes another that we will talk about that has raced both the Indianapolis 500 and as well in NASCAR and the story, how it all came about when we return to Beyond the Bricks. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. Jake Query, Mike Thompson, Beyond the Bricks here on 93.5-1075, The Fan, again this weekend at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Full slate of activity. Friday, the open wheel guys take to the track. Then Saturday and Sunday, stock cars in the form of the Xfinity race on Saturday. Sunday, the Cup Series takes over. So busy, busy time out at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. And we've been talking about those drivers in the early days in particular that conquered the Indianapolis 500 and as well came over and running into the stock car side of things. We heard from Mario Andretti in the last segment. And Mike, I'm excited about this next one because it involves what I believe and you have done many, many good ones. But one of the better interviews that I think you've conducted with one of the guys that is truly one of the great ambassadors for the sport of racing and also just a master at being able to vividly recall how all things came about 
in the form of how he made his introduction into stock car racing. And we're talking about Johnny Rutherford. Yeah. Outstanding storyteller, outstanding ambassador. And he was so gracious with his time this year when we were putting together the shows for uh, Heroes of the 500 for WIBC this year. He he was just so gracious with his time. I mean, he, he told me he had about an hour to work with me and, and he ended up giving me about two hours. And, you know, just so wonderful uh, to, to have the opportunity to speak with uh, Lone Star JR. And so wanted to bring back some of the audio of uh, – that for this NASCAR week, you know, talking about how he got into NASCAR because it's actually, uh, you know, very timely now with what's happened over the summer in NASCAR that we'll talk about. So let's get into the beginning of this, and that is uh, take me through what we're about to hear in terms of Johnny Rutherford and just setting up for us kind of his introduction, if you will, as to when he got, I guess, all of us in all walks of life are always looking for that first big break. And am I correct in saying we're about to hear Johnny Rutherford talking about his? Well, Johnny Rutherford at the time was running IMCA and, you know, he he was somewhat known, but he really wasn't a huge, huge name yet that he would, of course, become to be uh, known as a huge name. But uh, he really wasn't a giant, giant star yet. He he could have won the IMCA uh, sprint car title, uh, big car title, had he stayed in that before he, he made the move to USAC. But, uh, you know, he talks uh, in this first soundbite about how he got the opportunity to run his first NASCAR race with one of the biggest teams in NASCAR. And he's even he even said, you know, when they called him, he's kind of like, wait, you sure you want me? You know, so uh, it's really kind of a fun clip uh, how he got his first opportunity to run NASCAR. Johnny Rutherford on getting his opportunity to drive for Smokey Eunuch. You know that was that was another one of those steps that uh, that uh, are presented to a guy. And and uh, I had a Pontiac dealer in Dallas with a friend, and he called me up during the off season and said, uh, "In fact, it was just before." Uh, uh, the Daytona race. It was probably in in uh, oh February sometime, and and uh, he uh, called me and said, uh, "Do you think you'd ever like to run stock car at the Daytona 500?" And I'm going to say no. <laughs> I said, "Yeah, sure." He said, "Come on over here, and I'll call the guy. He's building a uh, new Chevrolet, and he and he's looking uh, for a driver." So. Anyway, I uh, called, or rather he called, and, and uh, I didn't, still didn't know who it was that, that he called. And uh, he said, yeah, he's right here. I'll put him on the phone. And he handed me the phone, and he said, here, talk to Smokey Eunuch. And I nearly dropped the phone. And I and, uh, uh, talked to Smokey, and he said, uh, uh, yeah, we're building this car, and uh, uh, I want to hire you to drive it. And uh, that was a puzzler because why would he want a sprint car driver uh, off of IMCA uh, to drive his stock car? Well, anyway, uh, he said, when can you be here? And I said, I'll be there tomorrow. He said, okay. So I made uh, threw stuff into my car, and I headed for, for uh, Daytona got to Smokey's shop and it was, it was dark and, uh, knocked on the door and all the, all the windows in the place were painted over black from the inside. And, uh, but I could hear, uh, torches and saws and things going on. And, uh, I knocked on the door and, and, uh, 
guy came to the door and opened it, cracked it a little bit. He says, yeah, what do you want? I said, I'm Johnny Rutherford, and I'm I'm here to drive Smokey's Chevrolet. And he turned around and yelled, hey, Smokey, your driver's here. <laughs> I went in and met all the guys, and, and uh, they were finishing up this car. I mean, you know, it was still had a lot to, to be done and they, they had to work all night. And and anyway, uh, went in and met Smokey and, uh, he said, told one of the guys says here, fit him in that seat and get everything adjusted for him. Now what Johnny Rutherford was able to do is something that kind of made headlines recently. As a matter of fact, Mike, I was watching the NASCAR street course race in Chicago that took place a few weeks ago, and I'm watching Shane Van Giesbergen, as everybody was simply saying, SVG, I think it's a little easier to roll off the tongue, of New Zealand, leading that race, and I thought to myself, here's a guy that's about to win a NASCAR race in the very first time he ever got into a NASCAR ride. And then I became curious. I wonder if that's been done before. Guess what, Mike? You know that answer, don't you? That's correct, and the, the person who did it before him was Johnny Rutherford. Because back then, the rules were a little bit different. The Daytona 500 qualifying races in that era counted as, you know, for lack of a better word, points-paying races. They, they counted as official, uh, what we now know as Cup Series victories. So even though that particular race was only a 40-lap race, it counts as an official uh, victory in the NASCAR records for Johnny Rutherford. So Johnny Rutherford's first NASCAR race was the 1963, the second of the two Daytona 500 qualifying races, and he won the race. And so then when when Shane won the race, uh, it was the first time since Johnny Rutherford had done it that somebody won in their first ever NASCAR, you know, race in NASCAR's top series. Here is Lone Star JR recalling those early days of his opportunity in NASCAR. He uh, took the car to the track, and we went to the sign-in and and uh, got my credentials and everything, went inside and unloaded and got things put in the garage. And Smokey said, you're going you're gonna to need somebody to an- answer some questions for you. I'll be right back. He went away in about... Then 15 minutes later, he came back with two guys following him. And he said, here, I want you to meet Joe Weatherly and Fireball Roberts. And, uh, boy, I, I, that, that was something else that, you know, got me. But uh, I knew the names. And anyway, uh, uh, they were my tutors for my first Daytona 500. Uh, little Joe was having problems with his with his car. And... Uh, so he wasn't much help other than when we met. Uh, he he was from Virginia, and he had that Virginia talk. He said, hey, kid, it's called right. You can run it flat-footed all the way around here. And I thought, wow, okay. And uh, Fireball did help me quite a bit, told me some things about the track, turn two, and the wind, crosswind and turn two and things. And anyway, uh I went out and and uh, the car was great. It, it you know it handled good. I drove it around the track and and uh, uh, we were fast. You know right off the bat and uh, naturally, uh, Junior Johnson had the other had uh, another car Chevrolet, 
and uh, it had uh, nearly the same engine in it. And uh, uh, Junior and I battled for the pole position or fast time, and I, Smokey, keep pulling tricks out for his sleeve, you know, and making it a little faster and a little faster. And uh, anyway, uh, I got the new track record and a pole position and uh, uh, was was qualified for one of the – uh, heat races. They ran the two heat races to determine the the two lines of the starting of, of the t- of the field at, at Daytona, and uh, had quick time. But they had uh, a ruling that the champion from last year and and somebody I think it was Fireball Roberts and and uh, any, uh, yeah. Anyway, I, I Junior and I started behind, or I started behind uh, them. And, uh, uh, it was, uh, you know, I, uh, started in the front of the, of the thing and, and the car was so good that, uh, you know, I had, uh, I just, uh, ran the race and didn't have to really battle anybody for the lead and, and, uh, uh, won the thing and, uh, that started me in that second row at the, at the, in the 500 and uh rex white was another one that had i think he had a similar engine but uh, not quite the same but anyway uh we we started the the 500 uh a lot of funny things during the uh thing uh the driver from miami he and his dad uh uh, he raced, his dad had raced there and now they had a car and, uh, one, one day in practice, uh, I was out running and, uh, he came out of the pits and made it around to the backstretch before I got to him. Well, he just pulled up right in behind me as, you know, a few cars, several cars back and tried to draft, you know, and, <laughs> I, I sailed off into turn three and just happened to glance in my mirror and uh, I could read the number on the right side of his car, uh, which meant he was pretty much out of shape behind me trying to follow me at that speed. <clears throat> I finished my run, pulled in the pits. In a minute here, he came walking uh, down pit lane toward me and he said, damn you, Rutherford. He said, I I have never gone that into turn three that fast before. And he said, I got busy. I said, yes, I know. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> it was it was uh, good, but it was great experience, you know, and, and uh, uh, really running a good car on a two-and-a-half-mile track like Daytona uh, is not a whole lot different than driving on a good interstate you know i mean it's just a good track and uh, had a few bumps here and there but anyway it was uh it was an experience and great experience and of course boosted my stock and i uh, had a call later and in fact uh smoky asked me says you want to stay down here and run run with me and i said smoky uh i really want to go to indianapolis and he knew because he he loved the Indianapolis Speedway, 
as you know, he he developed two or three cars, uh, the old uh, sidecar that he built, and and uh, all the different different types of things. And uh, he knew what what it was. So uh, that was you know that was it for me and and uh, NASCAR. Although I had opportunities after that, and and uh, ran I think in a total of thirty seven. NASCAR races during my career, but uh, that was my best one for sure. And seven of those races were the Daytona 500. As a matter of fact, he returned in 1964. Johnny Rutherford did not run it in back-to-back years, talking about the Daytona 500, other than 74 and 75. He raced it also in 66, 77, and 81, but it was, of course, the three Indianapolis 500-mile races with which he would become most famous. But Mike... You know, interestingly enough, when he was racing those early races, in particular for Smokey Eunuch back in Daytona, uh, he was still going against plenty of guys that he was well familiar with racing against at 16th and Georgetown. Well, he he knew Parnelli Jones, although uh, he hadn't, uh, you know, run that. He hadn't run the Indianapolis 500 yet. He ran the Daytona 500 before the Indianapolis 500 which was interesting. I always thought, I always think that's an interesting trivia question you can get people on, which is Johnny Rutherford drove the Daytona 500 before the Indianapolis 500, which was kind of interesting. But uh, Parnelli Jones was in that uh, Daytona 500 qualifier that Johnny Rutherford won. He finished eighth. Uh, Also interesting, I think, is uh, in that same field was Ralph Earnhardt, which is Dale Earnhardt, um, you know, Dale Earnhardt's dad which I think that that's kind of cool. Roger Ward was in that race as well. Um, Wendell Scott, uh, the pioneer driver, NASCAR driver, he was in that field as well. And uh, Bobby Johns, the driver he was talking about who was from Miami uh, in that soundbite, that's Bobby Johns. He also drove in the Indianapolis 500. Uh, you might recall that he drove for Lotus and was Jim Clark's teammate uh, in 65. He's He was in that field as well. And also, this is really interesting, and I think you'll get kind of a kick out of this one, Jake. Also in that field in 1963, when Johnny Rutherford won that 1963 qualifying race, was H.B. Bailey. Now, you might remember H.B. Bailey as the first person to make a qualifying run for the Brickyard 400 in 1994. Amazing. the Brickyard made its debut. So he was in the 1963 Daytona qualifier that Johnny Rutherford won, and then 30 years later was still running. H.B. Uh, Bailey was a character. I met him a couple times at Michigan, and he was he was one of the coolest cats you ever wanted to meet. Uh, he would set up a kind of an old chaise lounge out, outside of his hauler, and he would just meet fans and stuff. And he, he was one of the coolest, coolest cats you ever wanted to meet. And uh, I miss that guy because he was – he was truly an old school, one of those old school journeyman, you know, independent drivers that I, I really wish we still had in, in NASCAR. Uh, just a really cool cat. Interestingly enough, uh, Richard Petty, that 1963 Daytona 500, finished sixth that year. That was one spot behind Dan Gurney. So we could probably do an entire other show on racing innovators and those that perhaps were the greatest racing minds to not win the Indianapolis 500. Dan Gurney would be in that subject. Put a bow tie on the other feat of Johnny Rutherford that we mentioned was recently replicated in terms of starting and winning your first NASCAR Cup performance. Mike, I I made the observation of the comment at the time when 
SVG, as we'll call him, one on the streets of Chicago. Can you imagine in 1963 when Johnny Rutherford got out of the car and making the point that he had just won in his first NASCAR race, how many people in that crowd would believe you if you told them that you could look into a crystal ball and see the next time that feat would happen and it would be a driver from New Zealand doing it in a street course race through the streets of Chicago, Illinois? Probably not many would have believed you, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, talk about times changing in NASCAR. That is a big, big difference in how the sport has changed and evolved. A lot of fun tonight. Looking back on Mario Andretti, Johnny Rutherford, some of the crossovers, if you will. And we will give you a preview and put a bow tie on all of it when we come back on the other side to Beyond the Bricks. You're listening to it here on a Wednesday evening on 93.5-1075 The Fan. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. Around here, it's always bumper to bumper. I gotta concentrate full-time on my driving, so I use the racing version of the STP double oil filter. With a filter and a filter, I know I don't have to worry about the protection of my engine's getting. Of course, I don't know what kind of traffic you drive in, but when I go to work, man, it's always rush hour. Get filter in a filter protection for your car. The STP double oil filter. Richard Petty from 1974. little commercial there for STP. Jake Query here along with Mike Thompson. Thanks, as always, to Kylan Talley helping out tonight. Eddie Garrison as well. Todd Meyer. This is Beyond the Bricks on 93.5-1075. The Fan. I want to get you folks, by the way, set for what's going to take place this weekend and the reason why you hear us talking about the Indianapolis Motor Speedway on this Wednesday evening in Indianapolis. Coming up on Friday at 16th and Georgetown, it's going to be practice for the Gallagher Grand Prix. That is the IndyCar race that takes place at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. 9 o'clock in the morning. The gates will open at 8 o'clock on Friday. Then from 9 to 10.30, it is practice for IndyCar. Then it's Indy Next, the future stars of IndyCar. They will have a practice from 11 to 11.50. From 12.30 until 2 o'clock, it is qualifying for the Gallagher Grand Prix. That is the IndyCar qualifying effort, followed by a 2.20 to 2.40 qualifying session for Indy Next. And then practice again, 4 to 4.30 for the Gallagher Grand Prix. The Indy Next race will be from 4.50 to 5.50 in the afternoon. Then the gates will close at 6 o'clock. That is all on Friday. So a full day, busy day for everybody on Friday. Saturday, Gates will open at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway at 7 a.m. And then it's the Pennzoil 150 presented by Advanced Auto Parts Xfinity Practice. That's going to take place at 9.35. Then at 10.05, it is the Pennzoil 150 qualifications that will take place until 11 o'clock. Then the Verizon 200 practice, that takes place at 11.35. This is the Cup Series practice. They have two of them, 11.35 and 12.35 on Saturday. Then at 2 o'clock on Saturday, it is the IndyCar race, the Gallagher Grand Prix. That's going to be interesting to see how that rubber, of course, from one tire manufacturer blends in with the rubber that's been laid down for the others. Then at 5.30, the Pennzoil 150, presented by Advance Auto Parts. That is on Saturday. So busy day on Saturday. And then on Sunday, 10 o'clock, the gates open. And at 2.30, it's the Verizon 200 at the Brickyard. You can hear that race, of course, on this radio station on the IMS radio network. But Mike, real quickly, preview for us what we're going to do tomorrow night on Beyond the Bricks. 
We're going to talk a little bit about one of the true greats that sometimes gets lost and forgotten, Leroy Yarborough. Leroy Yarborough, and of course that last name pretty synonymous with racing as well. That'll be tomorrow night, same time, same station. Mike, a lot of fun tonight, appreciate it, and we will do it all again tomorrow. Sound good to you? Sounds good to me. I'm looking forward to it. All right, again, this has been Beyond the Bricks. Thanks so much for listening. 93.5, 107.5, The Fan.